From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. The famed ecologist E.O. Wilson once described our world as an intricate tapestry of interwoven life in which humans thrash about with no particular goal in mind other than economic growth, unfettered consumption, good health, and personal happiness. And that's mostly true. But in 1973, the U.S. Congress did something grand. It passed a law that almost everyone agreed would limit economic exploitation of our natural world, binding us to what is beneficial not just to humans, but to all of the other species with which we share this planet. Congress was bitterly divided over many issues at that time. The Vietnam War was raging. The Watergate investigation was underway. The Supreme Court had just issued its history-changing decision in Roe v. Wade. And yet the Endangered Species Act was not particularly controversial. It passed the Senate without a single nay vote. It passed the House 390 to 12, and not a single House member spoke against the bill or even did so much as offer any cautionary words. And that's because at that time, it seemed quite clear and obvious. We needed to protect this intricate tapestry of interwoven life. A lot has happened since then, and in the first volume of his latest work, Lowell Bear explains how this act went from popular to polarizing. In the second volume, Bear attempts to divine what is next, because while the Endangered Species Act has been successful in many ways, more than 1,300 species are listed as endangered or threatened under U.S. law. And that's a small fraction of the more than 150,000 species on the so-called Red List compiled by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, which estimates that worldwide, 41% of amphibians, 36% of reef-building corals, 34% of coniferous trees, 12% of birds, and 26% of mammals are threatened with extinction. To change these trajectories, Bear says we need even more conservation, even more innovative solutions, and even more funding. And that's not going to be easy if we can't make conservation as popular today as it was when this law was signed 50 years ago. So we have work to do. Lowell Bear is an attorney, a historian, and an author. He spent 60 years as a tireless advocate for natural resources and wildlife conservation and his latest works on those topics, the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2, are available now. Lowell Bear, welcome. Thank you, Matthew. Lowell, you've written that the environmental consensus that led to the Act's passage in 1973 began to show some fractures during the Carter administration. When did those fractures become clear? Because you've written also that it's more clear in retrospect that it was at the time that this was starting to happen. It really began to become more noticeable during the Reagan administration uh, that followed Carter. His first Secretary of Interior was a fellow by the name of James Watt, and he basically shut down the enforcement of the Endangered Species Act. But the fractures really started, if you really want to look at it microscopically, in 1978 when the case of TVA v. Hill uh, went before the Supreme Court. And that really opened up the dialogue in America and split the public over a good versus bad in terms of their viewpoints on the Endangered Species Act. 
You mentioned that Watt shut down enforcement. This was in part, as I understand it, because when the law was passed, the states were individually expected to carry out a conservation program for every federal listed species. But at that very early point, the states had begun to object to the broadness of the act. They didn't feel like they had the capacity to do that. That's exactly correct. The states uh, and this controversy between the states and the federal government and who has priority, if you will, has gone on really. It, it, it was part of the debate in 72 and 73 uh, while the act was being worked through the Congress. And it has sustained itself ever since because states were expected by Congress to participate fully in the implementation of the law. And as you and your listeners may recognize that when the Fish and Wildlife Service designates a particular species as endangered, the recovery efforts fall then upon the state or states where that particular species is found. And the, the federal government did not properly fund the act from day one. They really underestimated what it was going to cost for the recovery programs. And the state's sovereignty was invaded, uh, in their opinion, properly so. That really caused consternation amongst the states, especially in the West. But it came about, A, because it, it put a, a, a real wound in the historical jurisdiction that states had over their wildlife. But then number two, put the burden on them of recovering the species that they had no say in whether that species was going to be listed or not. Then they didn't have, they weren't given enough money to really pay for it. I think a lot of people today, and I assume back in the 1970s and 80s as well, imagined that the Endangered Species Act would be protecting animals like the bald eagle and polar bears and manatees and all these creatures that have come to be known as charismatic megafauna. But one of the first high-profile fights that came out of the act was framed by many as a fight between the development of a dam by the TVA on the Little Tennessee River and this little sardine-looking fish, no bigger than a finger, that had only just been discovered a few years earlier. How did fights like these begin to change the way people and politicians thought about the act and what its costs versus benefits were? The Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Burger wrote that decision, and he says every species, every living species on the planet, and especially in America, were covered by that act. And it had nothing to do with megafauna or anything. It had to do with the life of all the species in the, the universe that makes up our biodiversity today. And they were very, very pronounced in that. And so that's that was, as you have characterized it, that was really the, the uh, bitter pill that started the acrimony. Uh, still, there is a what I call a dark mythology that is passed down in families, especially in the West, where they still see the Endangered Species Act as a land grab, as a, as a control me mechanism to control land use, which it is never intended to be at all, nor was it ever conceived to be on the floor of the House of the Senate. Nobody ever saw it that way. But the mythology follows and still is with us today. Let's talk about some of the fights that happened in the West that contributed to this, as you call it, dark mythology. Again and again, we saw these fights and the act's bluntness and implementation 
But probably well-meaning bureaucrats seem to be a problem for people on many sides of the political spectrum. I mean, we tend to think about these fights in terms of like the logging companies that became frustrated by the provisions that were intended to protect the spotted owl and the ranchers who were enraged by efforts to protect wolves. But also in the West, there were many environmentalists who initially objected to the decision to take all of the remaining California condors out of the wild to enter into a captive breeding program under the auspices of this law. And so little by little, a lot of people from all parts of society began losing parts of their faith in this law and the way it was being carried out, yes? Partially so. First of all, the first act was in 1966, a very simple one-page act that was more aspirational than anything. And then, of course, in 73, they totally rewrote the act. But the men that wrote the law, edited and edited and worked it through Congress, were all World War II veterans. And many of them had seen fairly serious combat. But those that did had a very strong command and control mentality pushed down from Washington. It was a a top-down approach to regulating and managing the country. And when you really read the act, the first act of 73, there there are no outs. I mean, it is an absolute ironclad law that was put into existence by military people that thought from a military approach to how the country should be run and how this particular challenge of the endangered species should be managed. So the thought here is that if if you see a crisis and the nation as a whole, as it did in 1973 and these prior acts that led up to it, says through its Congress, this is something we have to act on, then the thought process of the individuals who were making this law and calling for this implementation was, we've identified this crisis. Now, as good soldiers, let's go out and fight it. And that rubbed up against changing cultural mores, including, as you've said, you know, political leadership that didn't have that mentality, increasingly didn't have that mentality as we as the decades progressed and we got further and further away from the world wars. That's correct. And that's why the Clinton era changed that by saying, wait a minute, this approach, this top-down militaristic approach of absolutism, if you will, this is not going to work because it is dividing our, our working land owners. And we need them to really make this law effective because they're the ones closest to the species that are, that, that are endangered and in crisis. Bruce Babbitt, who had been a senator from Arizona, who was the governor of Arizona before that, could really see it clearly in the need to make this law work better. And so he took this command and control mentality out of the law by passing a series of regulations that made it much easier for uh, enforcement and for those that had to deal with enforcement. So now we have this law that's really complex and nuanced and becoming more complex over time in an attempt, I think a, a good faith attempt, to make it a better law. But now politicians have to take a side. And this really begins this back and forth game where the act is often... Uh, and continuing today to be treated as this political volleyball with one party pushing to increase its scope and the other pushing for delisting and not just legislatively, but also in terms of executive policy, right? 
Correct. Yes. Since 1995, there have been 608 bills entered in the Congress that either weakened or repealed the Endangered Species Act. That's since 1995, 608. This Congress alone, we're over 50 at this point of weakening or repealing the ESA. So it continues. This animosity continues. And it's not just the legislative side of things, right? It's the executive side of things. One of the things I often think about when it comes to federal law and the way it's implemented is that the stuff that gets implemented the same way from administration to administration, regardless of policy, that stuff usually runs pretty well. It's the stuff that's subject to a lot of interpretation and variation in policy from one president to another that often struggles to achieve really any goals in either direction. It just really stagnates and gets mired. I have been highly disturbed, just as a citizen of the United States, to watch the Obama administration work hard to reverse a lot of the Bush regulatory policies. And then Trump followed Obama, and he did the same thing. He, he, he started erasing everything that Obama had done. And I'm sorry to say that it's not quite as bad with a current Biden administration, but there has been some real reversals. Let's stop here for a moment and ask, in this first 50 years, what's gone right? What's the momentum that we have coming out of the first 50 years since the passage of this law that continues today and is still moving in the right direction? Two things, Matthew, two things that respond to that question. The first is the recognition that the law has to be flexible in order to for the working landowner to be comfortable with and supportive of the law. Number two is what I'll call collaborative conservation. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, the National Marine Fishery Service that handles just the marine mammals, both have recognized that they can't do this alone, that they really need to engage one-on-one with working landowners. They can't be just, it's our way, we will issue these regulations and policies from Washington and, and you country will accept them. Uh-uh, they don't work that way. They work closely with many different industries to get it right before it gets into a regulation. So those two things, one, flexibility, two, cooperative conservation. And there's even a group that's been formed. It's now, it's now incorporated. It's got a director, an executive director called Conservation Without Conflict. They are working very hard to get the message out across the country to all working landowners in different industries that working with the federal government and the states is a better way than dealing with them in court. At the end of volume one, you dive into some fundamental questions of philosophy. You talk about the ways in which the utilitarian ideas of Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mills guide a lot of our environmental decision making in that we seek to make decisions that drive the greatest good for the greatest amount of people with maybe an emphasis on that people part. Uh, You also write about Robert Gottlieb's arguments that whether one is religious or not, the intrinsic feelings of inspiration and the recognition of beauty and the connectedness we feel for the natural world. All of these things are clues that a defining characteristic of our species is and should be a concern for protecting the natural world. But all of this, you note in the book, comes down to the question of caring. Are we going to care about these things 
as individuals in a society or not. What are the obstacles that you see right now to people really caring enough to take action? Greed, capitalism as a broad principle of the way you manage a country, obsession with self are, are some of the key elements that are the major blockages to this. We are so disconnected as a society from nature. I was, I was raised on a farm in Indiana. We didn't have electricity or running water. We played outside all the time. We hunted and fished for meals frequently. Today, kids don't have that opportunity. That disconnect is, is a major issue. You mentioned uh, my friend, uh, Ed Wilson. He wrote a lot of books, but Ed wrote a book called Biophilia years ago. And biophilia is the natural tendency for people to want to relate to nature and be a part of nature. Unfortunately, that tendency to be want to be a part of and incorporate your, your soul and yourself with nature has been blocked like an eclipse. You just said the words, my friend... Ed Wilson, we were talking earlier about your relationships with so many of the different presidents. Do you ever just kind of look back and shake your head at the life you've lived? <laughs> like, and just, I mean, do you ever just look yourself in the mirror and go, you are one lucky son of a gun? Well, I don't know about that, but I certainly count my blessings for the people that I have intersected with over my life. It's amazing. When, when did you catch the bug for conservation? You were in Washington in practice as an attorney when these initial bills and then the big one were passed in the late 60s and early 70s. But there must have been something that drove you from, I, I assume, an early age to want to be involved in conservation like this. You, you grew up on a farm, as you said. You hunted and fished. Was that it? Was that all of it? Or was there something else there? During that period of time, the Boy Scouts became very a strong part of my life. And one of the merit badges that I was interested in working on was entomology, where you collect bugs. And so I began to collect and, in, and index and, and learn about bugs and butterflies. And my collections grew uh, as I did this. And I took them to the county fair and the state fair to show them off. Uh, it just, it just, it just became a part of my being to be in nature, uh, getting to identify the, 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 the various specimens in the bug world, if you would. And I just uh, c continued that interest as I got older. I stopped collecting, but I stayed very close to the farm, to agriculture and uh, all of the problems that come with farming and the like. I want to pose a hypothesis here, which is that if you spend enough time with insects, you can't help but recognize the vital role they play as part of the tapestry of life. And you come to understand that all things, great and small, are important to sustaining life as a whole. Do you think that had a lot to do with your recognition of the importance of not just these charismatic megafauna, but also all of the organisms that need to be protected are protected theoretically under the ESA? I began to, and this is, golly, this has got to go back 30, maybe 40 years, but I began to get in, into the whole ecology concept of how nature has its interacting parts 
and there's a prey-predator relationship throughout uh, the universe of organisms and how how they all interact and one one without the other is uh, changes things it was a natural progression of my mind i have a very curious mind and it's just been a slow maturation of work for me over the years let's dive into the second volume which looks at the next 50 years and th- this volume is a bit of a strategy guide based on lessons learned uh you and your co-writers co-editors have recruited a lot of experts who have had some conservation successes and have sought to draw a line to scale those successes ever upward. I'm wondering out of this experience, do you have the sense that we have learned enough lessons in the first 50 years to adequately chart a course for the success of protecting endangered species in the next 50 years? The the short answer is yes. We've learned a lot in 50 years. Back in 1973, these warriors, I'll call them warriors, these warriors that put that act together did not see coming, nor could anyone forecast what we are living with today. Invasive species, uh, aggressive international wildlife trafficking, climate change, uh, drought, and wildfires that we're, we're suffering with. They couldn't foresee those things. So it was a very rigid law. We now understand that it can't be rigid, and we have to look far beyond with the, the lens of science to see how to deal with the problems that we're dealing with today. The path that you've laid in this book includes more than 100 specific recommendations for improving the act and its implementation. These cover things that you believe Congress should do, that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service should do, that the states can do. I'm going to give you some magical powers for a moment here. I'm going to allow you to call upon the gods and enact one of these things right now that, having been done, will give us the best chance of enacting all of the other things that need to be done. Where do we start as we enter this next 50 years? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Matthew, because it's got a very simple answer, money. When the Congress passed that law in 73, they totally underestimated the cost of maintaining that act and maintaining recovery. As the list grows and we have more endangered species listed, that means there, there are greater burdens on the recovery mechanisms that are in place. So that's the simple answer to your question. Do you think that there is a future, comes a future in the next 50 years in which we have anything close to the consensus of support for protecting endangered species that existed for that strange and special moment in time in the early 1970s. Yes, I do. And let me tell you what's going to trigger it and force it. It is the decline of the of the quality of our environment and our biodiversity. For you and your listeners, when I say biodiversity, the sum total of all living organisms, whether it's a plant, a bird, an animal, a fish, a crustacean, uh, the the whales, uh, uh, the the smallest 
living organism that you would find under a rock. That is biodiversity. And they all, that community of biodiversity, all feeds upon itself to survive. Your friend, E.O. Wilson, said about biodiversity, if insects were to vanish, the environment would collapse into chaos. And so we should preserve every scrap of biodiversity as priceless while we learn to use it and come to understand what it means to humanity. Yes, that's what he said. You've done, Matthew, you've done your homework well. Uh, uh, Ed said that, and he, and, he, and he believed it, too. He really believed it. That's Lowell Bear. He's a conservation attorney, environmental historian, and prolific author. And his latest works, the Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2, are a history of environmental law for the past 50 years and a trajectory for action in the next 50 years. Lowell Bear, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Matthew, and uh, Happy New Year to you and all of your listeners. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous donation from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from listeners like you. You can support our work at donate.nprstations.org UPR. Our producers are Claire Scott and Reagan Edelman. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.